a biotechnology startup is revolutionizing the medical industry, the immune system and its implications in human health, and tips for how to become a successful scientist, all in this episode of Goggles Off. Alright, welcome everybody to the very first episode of Goggles Off, the show where I get outside the lab to interview scientists to learn more about them and their research. I'm joined today by Gregory Jordan. Greg, how you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. You know, just trying to stay cool. Uh, me and Greg are actually sitting in a confined room because it's got the best audio quality, and we're both just sweating away. So thank you so much for endearing through that. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Greg, you work... Can I call, is it okay if I call you Greg? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, we've known each other for like four years now, so I'd imagine I can. It'd be weird if I couldn't. Um, you work for Seramune, right? Yeah. Which is this recent startup started in 2018, uh, centralized here right in Goleta. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? What is the company about? What do they do? So yeah, I work as a research associate at Ceramune and the company, essentially our goal is to um, probe the, well, in science terms, it would be, we want to develop an understanding, um, probe the B cell repertoire to develop diagnostics or assist with things like vaccine development or therapeutics. Right. Yeah. 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 So you sent me the link to the website. It seems like developing new approaches for preventing diseases, diagnosing them, um, and just treating a range of diseases. It seems like the right, general yeah. general goal. And it seems like the way Ceramune goes about this is through mapping the immune system, try to map all the different uh, epitomes or the things that the immune system recognizes as, you know, foreign entities that are bad, the, the part of the antigen that the immune system actually is like, oh my goodness, attack this. Um, it seems like they're trying to figure out all of those that are conserved across, you know, people and organisms to try to use that information uh, to just improve the medical field and testing altogether. Right, yeah. Um, so what do you, I, I know you just got off work, uh, so maybe you don't want to talk about it, but what, what is your day-to-day -day kind of workflow? Um, you were telling me recently you did, you're doing something with coronavirus right now? Yeah, so essentially I'm, as a research associate, I'm mostly in the wet lab, meaning like I'm in the lab at the bench doing... Actually doing science, yeah, stuff. yeah. Yeah, whereas the dry lab would be more like behind the computer, bioinformatics, stuff like that. Right. And so I'm mostly like in the wet lab processing the samples, um, meaning essentially what we'll be doing is like we're trying to find the epitopes, which is what antibodies bind to. Right. You know, if you have an infection you produce an antibody response to it. And so I'm in the lab actually processing the samples, mm. the samples being um, human serum from people that were possibly exposed to different diseases. And then I'm screening them to try to actually get the antibodies uh, isolated from the serum. And so then we can sequence the DNA and then delve into the bioinformatics analysis of it. Right, all that magic. The bioinformatics yeah. is just pure magic, computers doing crazy things. Um, but I'm kind of curious, I didn't understand this, so essentially you have this blood serum, right? And let's say the person is positive for, uh, in this recent paper you sent me, it was Chagas disease, which yeah. is this, this disease that's caused by this parasite that's in this you know tropical tick, and it, it causes heart problems and all these horrible things. Um, it affects some somewhere near 8 million people a year. So it's not it's not a good thing. Um, and you guys developed an assay which actually tests for it f a way better way than the previous uh, standard uh, standardized testing uh, 
method currently used, right? So the standard method right now is two tests uh, with a third tiebreaker test sometimes used um, to confirm if somebody has Chagas disease um, and many other diseases as well. Um, whereas Ceramine is actually, they're just doing it with one simple test, just one quick to map the whole immunity, see what's going on with this person and actually kind of diagnose them right away. Uh, even if I'm not immune to something, right? So I have Chagas disease, even though I'm not immune to it, I still have generated antibodies for it in theory. Right. So when you get exposed to a disease, you'll produce an antibody response. Okay. And it varying um, your actual, it's called immunoglobulin right. is the actual like antibody itself. Right. And depending on the one very cool thing about it is depending on what stage you're at, you'll have different uh, antibodies in different immunoglobulins being presented. For example, like when you're first exposed to a disease, it's usually your IgM, your immunoglobulin M, that level starts to um, increase. Okay. And then when you're later in the disease, like maybe uh, it depends on the disease, obviously, and stuff like that too, you'll develop like an IgG, immunoglobulin G response. It's just mm. M versus G, like different... Um, different structural structural differences between the two but or, yeah sorry the interrupt so essentially since ceramine can kind of look at their whole serum all at once right you can see where along in kind of an infection or something a person is based off their their different quantities of these different antibodies you're just talking about right so that's what's really cool about it is you can get like a temporal aspect to this response that you have for example if you see they have a very high IgM titer or a high IgM score on mm -hmm. the Ceramune um, diagnostic test, but they don't show an IgG response. You could infer possibly, oh, maybe they were just exposed to this disease. They mm. haven't developed this later IgG response. Whereas usually when you see, uh, whereas also if you see like they have IgG antibodies at a high level, but low IgM, you could think, oh, they got exposed and the IgM response went down but then they have this IgG response, so they're later along in the disease. So you can kind of infer from there how far along they are with the disease. And then the other thing, too, that is um, important and helpful with this testing is that with IgG, for my understanding, you, which also comes along with immunity and stuff in general, your IgG response is kind of like a permanent like you have memory cells which will stay in um stay in your body right so you know if you get that that is like how the vaccines and stuff work right too. store store that you know cure long term in the back yeah of the so system. you yeah. inject them with a virus and they have an antibody antibody response to it and then you get these um memory uh b cells to it and so your igg response will stay in your system so you know you could be exposed to a disease in the year 2013 but then you get tested for it in the year 2020 and you still have an IgG level in your body. So you can still be like, oh, I was exposed to this disease, even though it was a while ago. Mm. So, but these epitopes and people who, you know, they, they've you know, been infected with a disease, Chagas disease in this case, um, and they're not immune to it, right? They, they're in the process of having a you know, like developing their immunological immunity. response, but yeah. they're not actually immune. They're not just walking out. Oh, I, it doesn't matter. They can't affect me. Yeah. Um, but how, so, but those epitomes, right? Those, those things that the immune system is recognizing on the antigens, uh, those are still valuable, even though they're not, I guess the ones that confer like this immunity, like they're totally immune. Like it's still valuable, even though they're, they're still symptomatic and they're still suffering. Right. Yeah. So it's still, you know, even though they're still suffering and stuff, 
understanding what epitopes the antibodies bind to mm. are it's critical in like diagnostics in drug development for example if you were to figure out at, like let's say chagas or whatever you find this like really strong epitope like you like know that um i mean i don't know how the antibody um, from chagas disease binds what epitopes it binds to or anything sure. but if like let's say you just find this epitope that this antibody like oh yeah it totally binds to this epitope super strong interaction in a lot of like drug development and things like that they'll actually develop drugs like that either like mimic this epitope right. they develop a mimitope or they like will even develop drugs to block the interaction between the antibody and the epitope and so different things well you actually wouldn't want to block the antibody and the <laughs> epitope if it's a disease but they'll do things like um or even with uh with cancer research with tumors a lot of the times because tumors are like rapidly dividing mm -hmm. they'll actually um, create these neoepitopes they're called where just from all this rapid division and everything you'll it, it'll create these epitopes just this you know see proteins that mm. your immune system will hopefully recognize as right. foreign and then like attack and so people in tumor research uh, and cancer research take advantage of this by seeing like oh there's this neo epitope this like new epitope that's in the tumor environment but it's not in other cells if we could train antibodies to attack this right. neo epitope we can prevent you know you, you'll um, get through that problem of like you know if that's in like your healthy cells and right. you have your antibodies and things attacking these healthy cells that's not good but if it's only in the tumor then you can like isolate your response to the tumor. Are these neoepitopes specific to a person or are they, are you finding that they're conserved across people? So you find an epitope that's, you know, it, oh, bam, this person has this epitope. They, you know, they have cancer. I can say that 100%. And then you apply that same epitope to another person and see that they have it. Then can you also say that they likely have cancer? Is that kind of what, what it is? I think there, there's a lot of like fine details and stuff too. A lot of it also depends on like, there's like the whole sero surveillance, like surveying people's serum across well, the world. And so you'll find like in Africa or something, you'll maybe you'll have more conserved epitopes in that population compared to like America. But it's also totally a things vary between as is common with all right. like genetics and right. biology. Things definitely vary from person to person. Right. So that's why it's important also that it's not just like you know, commonly with all these things, it's not just, oh, there's this one epitope this antibody binds to, and if you find this epitope, you've it found the diagnostic across the board. It seems everyone. like you're not trying to just, oh, here's here's the cure for everything. It seems like it's like we're trying to make the body of knowledge so that, you know, the medical community can actually tackle this with the tools that we've, we've given them. You're trying to build this immunity map, essentially. Right, and that's why, like, with Ceramune, we're developing, like, we're hunting for these epitopes right. that you commonly find antibodies to bind to, but we're developing, like, a full panel which would be a combination of a bunch of different epitopes right. that you find have really high scores, meaning like you find in a lot of these samples from people with um, like Chagas, for example, you have like a thousand samples where they have Chagas disease. And then you find by analyzing their DNA sequences that, oh, these people have, uh, like a lot of them have this epitope, mm. um, like very strong across the board. And then you develop a panel of these like strong epitopes so then you can more accurately 
develop a diagnostic or whatever you want to do with that. Right. So it's not just, you know, one epitope is the solution. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole combination, a whole panel. Gotcha. Um, I, honestly, I can't believe we're, we're roughly 12 minutes in and we haven't really described the technology <laughs> that Serenian uses, so we should probably get into that. Okay. Um, so Sarah stands for... Uh, Serum epitome epitome repertoire analysis, right? So it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, you're looking at all the epitomes, so all the pieces of the antigen that actually gets recognized by the immune system to trigger an immunogenic response. Um, and you're looking at all the epitomes in a person's serum and then analyzing them. Yes. That's, I mean, that's it. Uh, so can you kind of walk us through the process from serum uh, up to the bioinformatics point? Because we don't really need yeah. to go into the hardcore code and stuff, but... Uh, just kind of serum to, to bioinformatics. Right. So essentially how it works in like a simplified sense would just be, we basically have about like something around 10 to the 10 power different bacteria cells. And on the surface of these cells, we express um, 12, uh, a string of 12 amino acids and on e- in each cell, it's a different randomized 12 amino acid string. So mm-hmm. you imagine 10 to the 10 power, whatever number. It's a, it's a very, number. very Huge large number, number right. of random amino acids right. in, a, in, a tw- in um, a 12 amino acid stretch expressed guys, on the surface of these you cells. You guys chose the 12 amino acid stretch because it's been shown that 98% of epitomes usually are contained in that little 12, 12, 12 amino acids long. So that's why you chose that. And then by doing every random you know 12 amino acid strain possible under the sun uh you know a couple of those are actually going to be ones that actually mimic and fold just like the epitomes that you're looking for would be looking for so you basically cover the entire sequence space uh and generate these epitomes basically from scratch right so yeah basically like you have and you're hunting for like when you're looking for the epitope you're looking for like a needle in a haystack right so it's like Essentially, you have this <laughs> giant it, haystack you're <laughs> trying yeah, to... Yeah, <laughs> essentially, it's like, okay, there's a one in a million shot that I find the epitope that I'm looking for. Let me just run the simulation a billion times. Right, because right, you, know? you could imagine that you could just, one by one, <laughs> express yeah. the 12 different like oh. amino acids, but that would take years and years and years. And years so, and years and yeah. years, yeah. So that's why we've developed this called like a randomized peptide display library. Right. It's randomized, a stretch of 12 amino acids, and then usually, yeah, like 98% or something of epitopes that antibodies bind to are usually like five six seven amino acids or so so 12 was just a number that um came about based off of just empirically and from papers and stuff because right. theoretically you could have a hundred or so amino sure. acids yeah but People for simplicity do, do that in some senses but then you also can run into problems right. of like secondary structures forming right. and then like or you just have more interactions to deal with and it's sometimes superfluous and then you have like a balance between how much noise versus how like succinct are you with your binding right so you guys found that sweet spot and zeroing in and you're like this is what we want to look at in terms of well all the epitomes potentially up to 12 amino acids long that's what we're going to look at um so right these bacteria right these bacteria randomly display any of these random peptides on their cell surface um and then they're incubated with the the serum right the the blood sample or whatever and then which presumably has these antibodies in it, and then the bacteria, which is displaying pep- these random peptides, which do actually mimic the epitopes that you know cause an antigenic response. Those antibodies are actually going to bind those epitopes that the bacteria are holding on to, and uh, you then, you know, do was it fluorescence? 
fluorescence something cell sorting well yeah we can in the past they used to do uh facts which would be fluorescence no, you do max cell now. sorting now we do max gotcha okay which you you could do either fluorescent would just be if you have a fluorescent tag so yeah you essentially you have these bacteria cells like 10 to the 10 different combinations of 12 amino acids being expressed on these surfaces you incubate them with people's serum mm. and let's say they're really positive for chagas or something you would expect they have a ton of antibodies for chagas in their serum and you would expect it to bind a decent amount of times to this library mm. and then you'll use a secondary antibody like for example if this chagas um if you're that's like the difference between the igm and igg right, right, the right. two different acids like, let's say if you're looking for the igg response of chagas and so you incubate your bacteria display library with the serum. The Chagas antibodies will bind to this bacteria display library. Right. Then you use a secondary antibody that is specific to the, like you will for the IgG assay, we'll use AG beads, which bind to well to um, IgA and IgG okay. antibodies. And then that will be um, that that has a magnetic tag to it in, gotcha. in max it has a magnetic tag so then you use a magnet to pull out that whole complex the secondary bound to the antibody we're looking for bound to the bacteria I display see. library I see so it's kind of like a it's kind of like the Eliza sandwich method right so you have the bacteria yeah. which is displaying the peptide random peptide and then that gets incubated with the serum and then binds the antibodies in the serum and then a secondary antibody comes in, binds that antibody, which has a magnetic tag on it, and then that is that's how you separate these positive uh, these these peptides that are actually uh, epitope like or like epitopes, similar to epitopes. Yeah. Whereas if you were to do fax, this secondary would have a fluorescent tag on it, and then right. you put it into a fluorometer. I say fluorimeter. Cyclofluorimeter. Cyclofluorimeter. We didn't say it, but and then it'll be separated based off like if this fluorescent tag gets hit right yeah uh, just for you non-scientists out there uh fax and max is um fluorescent activated cell sorting so you put some cells in a machine it'll sort them out based off the, their differences in fluorescence and then max is the same thing just with magnets um instead of fluorescence um cool stuff very cool stuff um did we already talk about uh, we did talk about your work on the coronavirus um everything's really cool about ceramune uh and I love talking about research. I think science is great, but I kind of want to back up a little bit and talk about just your path, you know, like how did you find yourself to be such a successful scientist at a young age? I mean, what are you, 23? 25. 25. And you're already the face of, you know, <laughs> Santa Barbara's best up and coming startup right now. I literally, you, t you send me these two articles and you're like, oh, here, here Brandon, here's how the technology works. Oh, here's also, you know, the company website. Check that out. I click on the company website and it's your face, man. You're on the About Us page. I'm literally talking to the face of the company in my first podcast. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, how did how did you kind of get? Did you were you always interested in science? How did how did you kind of first get into science? Yeah, well, so I always loved math and science. Those are like, without a doubt, my two favorite subjects. Okay. Just going through school and then went through high school. Still loved math and science. Knew that's that's kind of what I wanted to do. My dad studied uh, business, so I was actually planning to study business. But didn't really know what I wanted to do. Decided to go to community college. And then at community college for like my general class, I took biology. And then I was like, 
okay, bio. Because originally I was like, I want to do some kind of science. Like physics would be super cool. Mm. Chemistry. It's also cool. Were you kind of feeling it out though? And you kind of chose bio, bio and you're like, wow, this is it. The, the like direct application to like the human body and life right. was why I loved bio so much. Gotcha. And then, so then I was like, okay, bi- no business. Maybe, you know, business is always kind of like in anywhere you go in industry or yeah. in academia. There's business a lot of business useful, and science so. for sure. So then I was like, bio is the way to go. And then I stuck with general biology, then transferred to UCSB and then took organic chemistry mm-hmm. and then was like, well, shoot, I don't want my chemistry knowledge to end after OCHEM. Like, right. This is oh, so cool. Oh, so so then I switched to biochem. Okay. And so then I got to take like the biochem series and then some PCHEM. And so then I was like, especially once, um, once I started to understand more of just, cause at first I was like, Oh, biology, it's like, you know, like cells and humans. And then right, like, right. Zoology the the mitochondria stuff. is the powerhouse of the cell. Yeah. But then once I was like, Oh, there's all these fine details, like enzymology, right. and all these like much more all, like, you know, these little niches. Then I was like, Oh, I super, super very much like, um, molecular biology like interactions of molecules right and i loved immunology which is why it's so cool getting to apply like these this passion in this major to ceramune i know that's so sick how did you actually uh get the position at ceramune i so i graduated ucsb and mm-hmm. was working in the feinstein lab um uh, working on the tau protein is involved in like alzheimer's right and then it was funny because um i I wanted to stay in Santa Barbara. My girlfriend was staying in Santa Barbara. She'd already gotten a job. I was like hunting around for oh, jobs man, over so you're the like, summer. Oh, I need to get a job. Um, and then after applying to some places, then them being like, "Oh yeah, we'll get back to you." Me being like, "All right, it's been a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it got back to me." Um, then I just stumbled across uh, stumbled across Ceramune, and then just uh, put in my resume, applied, and it happened to be that. Um, one of my current bosses worked at a, as a postdoc in the Feinstein lab, so we kind of had that connection about Feinstein. Okay, okay. And we talked about that, and then the um, the uh, what I learned like in the Feinstein lab of kind of like those the um, common practices like PCR and sure. like cell culture and things like that translated a lot uh, really well to what Ceramune was doing, and then so it just kind of worked out that I ended up going from the Feinstein lab to working as a research assist, uh, research associate at Saramune. Okay. What, when did you get involved in research during your undergraduate? And would you say that's critical for kind of building a career as a scientist or maybe not so important, maybe just focus on school? I started as a senior at UCSB and, um, if there's like one thing I could do going back to UCSB, it would be try to get into a lab as soon as possible. Right. That's exactly what I tell people when they ask me how to, what to do with my undergraduates in my lab. I'm always like, you just need to do as much research as possible. Cause that's yeah, what it's about. It's cause I even, I spent a full summer going from junior to senior year at UCSB, like emailing professors and even like random TAs and stuff, trying to get into a lab. And then I, it's especially for summer, it's kind of hard. Like yeah. <laughs> everyone's kind of doing their thing and stuff, but then I just kind of got lucky and then a TA I talked to after I had a class with her, she happened to have a position in her lab to like interview for. But after going from undergrad to, um, after having a bachelor's, like working in industry, mm-hmm. I kind of realized how extremely important it is to get experience in a lab while undergrad. Cause it's really right. difficult. Cause so many companies and stuff, they're like, 
one to two years experience in a lab you have to have experience doing these things and right. if you don't do it in undergrad it's kind of like where do you go it's literally to usually get to see literally a catch-22 like, it's, it's so funny. that's what it is yeah so you, you can't get a job to get experience without experience so yeah what are you, it, what are you gonna do? it's so cool because it also like it makes your classes so much richer i feel like when you get when you're working undergrad in a lab it's just so cool you oh, learn that yeah. stuff that you don't learn Big like, time. even in lab classes you you know you do learn like experiments and all that but really sure but you're just really being just immersed in the research recipe. yeah and uh, having that project that you continue on and right. like time management and all right. those like critical things and you're thinking about it all the time that's something that's always on your brain you know like yeah. that, this weird thing of people are like oh what are you thinking about and you're like right, if i told you <laughs> you yeah. wouldn't even you wouldn't even go way over your head you wouldn't care um have you ever had a non-science job anything or everything's been scientific in your life um i in terms of like full-time work it's uh, been as a scientist but i've also worked at i worked as like a camp counselor at the mm. ymca mm. um i worked as a surf instructor uh oh, over a, a summer uh and then some odd jobs at my dad's company like i worked in like a warehouse uh mm. like working with fedex shipping and then um working as like a document controller um also like my dad's company pretty much reading SOPs and stuff like that. Oh, lame. Stay with, that file. Yeah, freaking standard operating procedures and stuff. Yeah. Um, what is next on your agenda, right? So you're you're doing great at Ceremune. Do you want to go do a PhD at some point? I mean, don't really need it. It seems like, it seems like you got this great job. Um, yeah, what's on, what's next? Well, I actually just got accepted to uh, grad school. No way. Um, for So it's a back... I'm from Carlsbad, uh, uh-huh. from like San Diego area, back at Cal State San Marcos is a... It's a master's program uh, in biotechnology, but I liked it because it was, it's funny that the whole business ended up coming for full circle. I yeah. liked it because it's a biotech core with like biochemistry, protein biology, like bioengineering. So like a, a biotech focused core. And then it's also, it, it's a hybrid program. Part of it's also in the um, MBA um, program. Oh, great. So it's cool. It's like, it's, like a, it's a business and a biotech degree blended together nice. um kind of meshing it, your two kind of interests together yeah Beautiful. and so that was kind of my plan because i wasn't totally sure too mm-hmm. I, I was like oh phd it sounds so enticing i think i want to do it but also part of it too is like my my dad um uh i, I want to work with my dad back home he runs like a small uh, small but like biomedical device um company mm-hmm. and i was like oh it'd be really it's a cool combination i feel like getting to work uh, do this program and also work with my dad yeah it's dope. get some business experience so then i figure i'll do this and then in this time to probably if i want to go on to phd after that's the plan mm-hmm. and if not stick with um where i'm at after this degree but that's the plan for right now dang that is so exciting congrats Biotechnology's booming right now of it course is. and yeah masters is definitely that's awesome man i didn't i didn't know that it was news to me so yeah. i just found that out like last week yeah last week what what, yeah. what was your reaction when you kind of read that you're like you've been waiting for this email kind of how did you feel i was oh i was super excited yeah nice it was funny because i didn't know when because it, it was like pretty late to apply to the program i applied in like february or something where most of the time programs I think it's because it starts a little bit later in the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, I wonder if I'm going to find out in like June or July or something. And then it was just like April, like a few days before my birthday. I was like, oh, I just got into grad school. Oh Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Um, Wow. Uh, Oh, I guess one thing to touch on just with the science of Ceremune, which mm -hmm. is what like really when um, my boss explained the science and everything to me that kind of like really got me kind of like, oh my God, this is so cool, excited, was 
along with this science of like capturing these antibodies when you're doing the screening and everything, it's not like you're just capturing, um, you're not just capturing, like if, even if you're looking for Chagas or something, you're not just capturing their Chagas antibodies, you're capturing like all of their antibodies. Right, yeah. And then when you go into the bioinformatics, you, you, you know, you'll like, it, it's called like the, the enrichment, you'll see like, mm -hmm. you know, if they have a really high score for Chagas, then they like, oh, likely have Chagas. But that's the thing that really made me see like the power of like this um, hypothesis-free diagnosis testing. Right. That's that was one of the, when he said that that term, the hypothesis-free diagnosis testing. That's we should probably explain that a little bit. So that's right now you go into the doctor and they you tell him your symptoms. You're like, I feel like this doc. I got a headache. Blah blah. blah. He's like, Okay, let me order a panel of tests based off what you've just told me. But Sarah means saying that, yo. No, we don't. You know, we shouldn't do that. That's basing stuff of hypothesis. That's looking for answers that you're like trying. It's, there's there's bias there. How about we just look at their entire immune system and see what right. they got? So instead of doing multiple tests, which takes scientists, you know, cost scientists time and money, and you know, I mean, if if time is of the essence for your diagnosis, right? That's could be your life. Um, so getting faster results and faster diagnoses out there is critical, and that seems to be what Ceramine is doing, just optimizing this process. So yeah, yeah, that's so it's so cool. That's what like really got me excited. So in, you know, in a perfect world, all the assays have been developed and they're all perfect. You could just take like your blood serum, screen it in this procedure, and then you'll get this output of like like H pylori negative, right. like uh, herpes simplex one, like tells positive. You, tells you everything. Like, so yeah, that's what's so cool about it is that in you know obviously a perfect world after everything's developed and stuff, but you could literally just be like, what have I? What diseases have been I have I um been exposed to let's check my blood serum and then it's like oh here's everything that i have a certain oh, like whoa, level for that's something. interesting well so not only so this is kind of a weird tangent but could you detect if i've been exposed to something but if i don't have it, like have i ever like could you see if i've ever been exposed to someone who had like herpes or something but maybe i don't have it would that be something you could see that would that would probably be where you'd have to have the that fine-tuned like right kind perfect. of because if you've been if you've developed essentially like if you've you know. gotten, if you had an antibody response to something, it would be able to be detected. Mm. So even if you didn't develop, like, you know, it could be, oh, I had this cold this one time, mm -hmm. but let's say you actually developed a high response to uh, some, like, I don't know, like H. pylori, some like infection or something like that. And if you come up positive on this panel, you could be like, oh, maybe that cold I had this one time was <laughs> like wow. actually this infection, or it would be super helpful for things like someone goes to the doctor with an undiagnosed disease mm -hmm. and they're like, I have, you know, chronic fatigue. I have all these different symptoms. And they're like, we have no idea. But then you have this panel where you like run all these different tests. And even if your symptoms, it, it kind of like gets past this whole symptom doctor. Right. It kind of, you know, that hypothesis. So you could just be like, Oh, I feel sick. Not even that. Here's I mean, uh, was, is it Dougherty? Is that how I'm saying it? Dougherty? Darty. Darty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he said, that not only, I mean, if you could make it cheap and you could make it a fast assay, you know, just with this one test, you don't even need to do it when you feel bad. You could just be doing this yeah. yearly to see, you know, in the past year, what has my immune system seen? Yeah. And how you how can I help? Like for like workers in harmful environments or something, you could have like consistent yearly tests or something to see like if they've been exposed to anything. Oh, you need that for the, the organic or... chemists could definitely use yeah. that. See how their <laughs> yeah. DNA is getting chopped up by all the stuff they use. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Um, but yeah, once again, thank you so much for the show. That about does it for us. Um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, till next time, everybody, this is goggles off.
Um, stay smart, stay scientific, and stay safe during the pandemic. Later. <laughs> oh.